Well, we're back in 2 Timothy today, and we have a, just a few more weeks, and we'll finish up this amazing book. This book's been super encouraging for me, and I hope that it has been for you as well. And I hope you're reading it some on your own as, as well to kind of just soak it in, because it's easy to forget some of the things that we've talked about and to kind of just need refreshing. And so I encourage you to go back and reread that. Um, how many of you have heard of the name Charles Spurgeon before? Who's ever heard that name before? Well, this is a British preacher from back in the 1800s. Incredible. You can still find so many of his sermons online today. Just interesting if you can get past some of the older English to go back and reread some of his sermons. But one of the stories that he told I thought was, was a great uh, story to retell even after all these years. He told about a, a time when there was a gardener who grew an, an enormous carrot. Now, I couldn't find at Walmart an enormous carrot, so I'll just do the best I can for a visual, all right? So this is definitely not an enormous carrot, but it is a carrot, all right? So the, a gardener grew an enormous carrot, and he took it to his king, and he said, my king, this is the greatest carrot that I've ever grown or will ever grow. Therefore, I present it to you as a token of my love and my respect to you. Well, the king was very moved, very touched, and so as the man turned to leave to, to head out of the court, the king summons him and said, wait, wait, you are clearly a good steward of the earth. I own a plot of land right next to yours, and I want to give this to you freely just as a gift so that you can garden it all. And the gardener was truly amazed. He was delighted, and he went home rejoicing. Well, in the courtroom, there was a nobleman who was sitting there taking all this in, and he thought, my, if you get all that for a carrot, what if the king got something better even? And so the next day, the nobleman came before the king, and he was leading a beautiful black stallion. He bowed low, and he said, my lord, I breed horses, and this is the greatest horse that I've ever bred or will ever breed. Therefore, I present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king, discerning his heart, said, thank you. And he took the horse and simply dismissed the man. The nobleman was perplexed as he was leaving, and the king said, let me explain to you. The gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. And I'm afraid so many times in our relationship with God, that's the way we approach God. If I do these things, then you owe me this way of life. Or God, if I go to church or I read my Bible, then I'm entitled to these certain benefits in life. And we may not process that exactly that way, but I think we're surprised sometimes when bad things happen. And this book has talked so much, 2 Timothy, about suffering, that suffering should be expected for the Christian, that we're going to suffer for the gospel. But we all, the way we're hardwired, we want it to be all about us. What is in it for me? What do I get from this? And even our relationship with God shifts to that, that we think, you know what, God, you owe me. But God says, as we sing in the song, you're created for my glory. You're created for me. I own you, as was said earlier. And so as we look at Scripture today, and we're going to be reminded that the only way that we can have a proper view of God is through his word and seeing his majesty, his glory, that he is worth it, not because of what we get from him, but we get him. 
we get him. We get to know him. We get to have a relationship with him. And scripture says, faith comes from hearing and hearing from the words of Christ. And so we're going to see that a high view of scripture and a high view of preaching are critical to our spiritual life. And it's, it's, it's kind of sad that we have a chapter break between chapter 3 and 4, because you, you may know that there were no chapter and verses originally. These were letters that were written, and, and so you didn't have a chapter break because you miss out on the fact that if you look at this just independently, you miss out on what Paul or Timothy has been reading here, what Paul's been saying, that this high view of the Bible now translates to a high view of preaching. So we're going to go back, and we're going to read verses 16 and 17 from chapter 3, and then we're going to read verses 1 through 5 of chapter 4. So 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, if you're following along, it's in the app, it's on the, on the screen as well for you. Paul writes to Timothy, he says, All Scripture is breathed out by God, and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God, or the woman of God, may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God, and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, to preach the word. Preach this word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth, and they'll wander off into myths. As for you, Timothy, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Let's pray and we'll look at this text. Father God, we thank you for your word that gives us truth. God, we know that we have a tendency to trust ourselves, trust our hearts, trust our past experiences, our knowledge, oftentimes much more than we trust your word. And God, as, as Christians, the majority of the people here claiming to be followers of Jesus Christ, may today their view of Scripture increase, and in turn, their view of you be much bigger than the view they have currently. God, I pray that you will just move us to see our lives are truly living sacrifices for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Paul starts off verse 1 with a charge again. This has been a common word theme throughout First and Second Timothy. He says, I charge you, which is a way of saying, I, I strongly urge you, Timothy. And so this is Paul's final charge to Timothy. We've seen about six of these throughout these two books. This is the final one. It's literally, this is it, all right? This is it for Paul. This is the final chapter of the final letter that we have from him. And Paul knows that he's going to be executed very soon, and so he begins to sum up all of this information that he needs to pass on this legacy to Timothy. And he says, I charge you, I urge you, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. If you're a football fan in here, you probably know what the two-minute offense is, all right? It's not really a hard concept to, to take in if you just have casually called a football game here and there as your husband watches the games, ladies, but you may be a fan and you may know this, but a two-minute offense is an offense that's done when there's a great sense of urgency. The, the, the uh, quarterback, 
usually comes up with a no-huddle offense, and they're watching the clock the entire time. They're, they want to know exactly how much time they're, they're costing the team here because the goal is to score as quickly as possible, usually at the end of a half or end of the game, typically because you're behind in the game. And so there's a great sense of urgency, and you keep your eye on the clock. You need every second matters. And, and I, I love that picture because that's what Paul, the way he's lived his entire life, as if the clock was ticking in the background, as if he's doing ministry and he's constantly watching the clock, knowing that he doesn't have forever, we don't have forever, Timothy doesn't have forever, and he wants Timothy to live his life and fulfill his ministry the exact same way. So he's saying in this charge, he's basically saying in our vernacular, keep your eye on the clock. Be ready, Timothy. I urge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ. So he brings great attention to this, and he points out that God and Jesus are the witnesses, and then he says, and by his appearing and his kingdom. He's saying that Jesus is going to return. Jesus is coming. Keeping your eye on the clock is a matter of urgency, and it's a matter of seriousness, and it means that you need to do the things that you're doing with full intention of understanding why you're doing them. You know, many times we can fall into the habit of a lot of things in our life of just doing stuff because we just do it. That's what we're supposed to do. And we know that we can just be mindless and we can just go through the motions. And sometimes, you know, that's, necess- that's a necessity for survival. But when it comes to our relationship with God and when it comes to living out our ministry, we cannot have that attitude. I, I like to say, bring to God everything that you have at the moment. That's your, that's your act of worship is bringing all that you have at that moment to God. And, and, you know, there's days when you feel better and days you don't feel as good, days that you wake up eager to be in the Word, days that you wake up and you're not really so sure whether you want to read your Bible, but you grab it anyway and you read it. And, there, and there's days where you just give God everything you have at that moment. You know, when I, when I came up earlier, I noticed that my normal, the, the bigger podium that I've been using wasn't there. You know what I said? I'm like, oh, man, I'm glad it's not there. I'll grab that other one, that little one today. Because I woke up a couple days ago, and my, my lower back has just been killing me. And, and I'm like, oh, man, you know, getting old, right? But, but you, you, what do you do? Do you like, okay, I'm checking out because I don't feel good, or I'm going through this, that all of a sudden I'm not going to worship God? As you see God in his majesty and his glory, as his word comes alive to you and it opens up your eyes spiritually and God removes those blinders and sees his greatness, You can't help to bring him whatever you have at the moment. And sometimes, I I use illustration, sometimes it's down here. You just bring God all that you have, and it's very low, and it's it's not emotional. It's not a lot of feel-good stuff. But sometimes it's way up here, and you're excited because of what God's doing in your life. And you're able to respond that way because you're keeping your eye upon the clock. That you know that life is more than just making it from point A to point B today. That God is doing something, and he, like Timothy, has ministry for you, and he's holding you accountable for the way that you live your life. He says, God who, referring to Christ here, who will judge the living and the dead. Jesus will ultimately judge every human being. He will judge every human being. In Scripture, it talks about at least two judgments, possibly three. Some people believe there might be three. But the first judgment is called the great white throne of judgment. And this is when I pray no one in here ever has to stand before God at the great white throne of judgment. This is where unbelievers will be judged based upon how they respond to the gospel. This is what Scripture says. Revelation 20, 
John writes, And I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. And the earth and the sky fled from his presence. And they found no place to hide. And if anyone's name, verse 15, was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Man, that's, that's some serious judgment right there. And that's scary stuff. That scripture tells us that all unbelievers will be judged by Jesus based upon what they've done with the gospel. In fact, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 2 that those who don't know Jesus, they're actually storing up wrath against themselves and that God will give to each person according to what he's done. That they're going to be judged. Even all unbelievers will be eternally separated from, from Jesus forever. But there appears in Scripture to be possibly degrees of, of hell or different levels of hell. And so unbelievers are going to be judged based upon what they've done with Jesus Christ. And then also Scripture talks about a second judgment, which is called the Bema Seat or the Judgment Seat of Christ. And you can find this in passages like Romans 14 and in 2 Corinthians and some others that we will read in a second. But this is not a place where Jesus issues punishment for sins committed because it's for the children of God. Rather, it's a place where rewards will be given or lost depending on how one used his or her time for Jesus Christ. And so a time for rewards, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that next week as it appears in our text again. But I wanted to know, you know, what's the expectations? What is God going to judge us on? I have a friend who's in this room. He always wants to know, what's the expectation? What do you want from me? What, I mean, what, are, you, what are you expecting out of this here? And, and it's always a good question because sometimes we just throw out these statements and then we don't really give any like, meat to know, okay, what do I do with this? So if Jesus is going to judge us based upon our works, Christians, What's he going to be judging us on? So let's look at Romans 14.10. It's in your app. It's also on the screen. Paul writes this. He says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So in this passage, what he's getting at is, in the church community, in the body of Christ, if we live in such a way that causes other people to stumble if we live in ways that is harmful to other people's spiritual life because we're not being the interconnected body of Christ like we're called to do, as we talked about in our membership class this morning, uh, in our final membership class, there's a picture of two people riding a tandem bicycle. Anybody ever ridden a tandem bicycle before? Never done that before. It'd be interesting, I'm sure, to try. But it's working in sync, working in, in harmony with one another. And as a body of Christ, we're called to work together for his kingdom, yet Paul says, hey, be careful. Here you are, you're working against the cause of Christ by the way that you're acting, the way that you're treating and judging one another. And then in passages like 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, this is written, it says, so whether we are at home or away, meaning whether we're away from our body or home with Christ, home with Christ or away from Christ, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the, bo in the body, whether good or evil. So he's going to judge us on whether we made it our aim to please him. Is our life about glorifying God or about glorifying ourselves? Is it about giving God our best or is it about saying that we're bringing God our best, but it's really about us ultimately? 
And so we're going to be judged by the way that we live to please and glorify God. And then the third one, 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation, and the foundation is Jesus Christ, with gold, silver, or precious stones, and you're going to see a contrast here, he's going to show that these things, they're durable, they're lasting, versus wood, hay, and straw, which are highly combustible materials, they burn up. So each one's going to be judged. Each one's works will be made manifest on that day, and that day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of works each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And so the picture here is our works presented before Jesus Christ on that day of judgment as a Christian. And Jesus will say, let's see if you were accountable. If you used what I gave you wisely, did you use your spiritual gift in a way that benefited the body of Christ? And all this here again is, is in context of the body of Christ, building and serving and caring and ministering and teaching and discipling other people. And so we can walk in and do our thing and say hello and greet a few people and walk out and continue on with our life the rest of the week and then show back up again, and we can do that every week, again and again and again, and never truly build upon the foundation of Jesus, this church, this body, and building it up for his kingdom by building up other people. What is God doing in your life? And I want to know that. I want to recognize that. Is God speaking and working in your life, and how does he want me to play a part in that? Think about the mindset, if we had that mindset, walking into this service, walking into our K group, if we said, today I want to go in with the attitude of how can I serve others? What, God, what are you doing in their life? And how can I play a part in that? What do you need me to do? And so it could be something small, or it could be something, you know, that makes a huge difference that seems small to you. Going up to someone that God puts on your, your mind and, and you just say, hey, how are you doing? I've been praying for you this week. And that person all of a sudden, they're like, man, let me just tell you how it's been going. Or maybe looking out instead of, okay, where do I go next? Hey, where do we go next, babe? Where are we going to lunch today? Who are we going with? You begin to look around and say, okay, I don't know that person. I've never seen them before. Maybe I just need to go up and you know, put away my shyness and, and speak to them and say, hey, who are you? Good to meet you. My name's, and those are small things, but we begin to move out of my life for me. This life is for me, and I'm bringing my beautiful stallion to you, God, but really, it's, it's for me. And all along, Jesus is saying, look, bring me your best. Give me your best. It's for my glory, not for your glory. And the clock's ticking. And you've heard the little expression, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Maybe you've heard that little poem before. That's something we have to keep in our mind. Because our natural tendency and default is to forget. Forget the urgency. Forget the clock's ticking. Forget that we will give an account for the way we live our lives. And just do our stuff. But the day is coming when the king will return and everyone will be held account. So keep your eye on the clock. And then the next thing he says is, don't get distracted. Let's keep the main thing the main thing. 
So here's the charge to Timothy, all right? Here's the charge. He's gonna, he called Jesus and God as the witnesses. He said Jesus is returning. He says to Timothy, preach the word. Preach the word. For Timothy, that's your ministry, that's your calling, is to preach the word. Why? Because all Scripture is breathed out by God and is given to us and is profitable for building up. And profitable sounds like a really, like a, a kind of a, a passive word, but it's, it's beneficial. It, it encourages. The word changes our hearts. And there's nothing more important than we can do than to preach the word. And the word here in this context refers to the gospel, the announcement that Jesus Christ is Lord, because the people of that day would not have had, they wouldn't have carried their Bible to church with them. They would not have had this. Okay, they would have had the Old Testament scriptures, but more than likely when they went to homes to do church together, those scriptures would not even have been available to them. And so Paul's specifically referring here to the gospel, although now we can definitely say preach the word uh, applies to the entire counsel of God. But the word that Timothy said uh, that was given in, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, when Paul said, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. We talked about that weeks ago. That that's the gospel. And so the early church, they were to rally around the gospel just like we are. Everything we, should, we do and say should center upon the gospel. Gospel-centered in everything that we do. And here's my fear. And I've been mentioning this the last few weeks because it's tied in well. I think we're so guilty as Christians in this world to bundle the gospel with a bunch of other non-essential things. You remember a few weeks ago, I think it was Jake up here helped me, and, and he held up the different colors of paper, and you had the yellow and the red, the black, and so on. The, like the, the, the degree of seriousness about each one of these things. Sometimes we can bundle the gospel with a bunch of non-essential things. And so when we're parents teaching our children, or we're talking in the community, or we get in a debate at the coffee shop, or we begin to talk to someone on Facebook, we begin to bundle a lot of things that aren't essential to the gospel in with our gospel. And you don't know the person that you're arguing with or debating with, whether they're really a believer or not on Facebook, right? And a lot of times we get into these things with people even in this town that we don't know that well. And we bundle all these things together, and we bundle these things where our kids even think, you know, if, I, if I'm a Christian, if I'm a Christ follower and I believe the gospel, then I have to believe in all these other things as well. And I think that's a tragedy, and it is harmful because we think, make people think that the gospel involves certain economic policies or political leanings or this or that, and we take all these non-essentials into our gospel. But Paul says, don't get distracted. Preach the word. Preach the word. The word, the revelation that he's given us, the word of Christ, the gospel, make that your anthem. Make that the most important thing that you say. When somebody sees you coming on the street and they're going to cross you, they don't go, oh, here it comes. I'm going to get a big talk about their flavor of the day preference or their latest slant and, and, and take on the politics of the day. They should think, well, here comes someone who loves the gospel. They love Jesus. And it's so part of their life that probably I'm going to hear about Jesus in this conversation. And that's the idea of preaching the word. And for Timothy, it may have been a, a little more formal, like me standing here today, but it applied to everyone in the church that we are all to preach the word. And he says, next, be ready in season or out of season. 
And for Timothy, it could have been referring to the fact that, you know, like I said before, we all go through seasons. We go through times where we fill it. Sometimes we don't fill it. Sometimes we go through periods of time where we're just discouraged or where our soul is, is down. And other times our soul's up. He could be referring to that. He could be referring to the fact that there's going to be sometimes when you preach the word and the circumstances are going to be very friendly. The congregation, the, the, the group is going to really support you. And other times it's going to be out of season. It's not going to be so safe to share the message of the gospel. And it's not going to be such an easy thing to do. It's going to be tough and there's going to be tension. It could be awkward or difficult. But he says to speak and teach and preach the word. And he says the reason why you need to do this is because the word reproves and it rebukes and exhorts or encourages. And the reason we need that is because we don't see ourselves accurately. We don't. We don't see ourselves very accurately at all. We think about our lives and we think about what we do and we think, I'm, I'm pretty good. And that sin, oh, you know, it's a one-off. I justify that because of this or they did that. And so we don't see ourselves because sin kidnaps our desires, our heart. And it, and it allows us to be blind to the truth. And we think because our hearts, you know, we think it feels right. But our heart's off. Our heart is not right with God. Our heart's not in the Word and seeing the majesty of God. And so, therefore, sin kidnaps our desires. And we think all of a sudden that we're in the right when we're actually not. And so we need the daily intervention of the Holy Spirit through God's Word. We need His Word daily, not just on Sundays. We need it daily speaking into us. And we need... The body of Christ speaking into us because we are naturally, spiritually blind. And so reprove and rebuke, and he says exhort to encourage. And then he says, with complete patience and teaching. So Timothy, I want you to do this. I want you to be in season. I want you to be out of season. I want you to be preaching. No matter what the audience, what the situation, preach the word It's going to be tough. It's going to be difficult. Some people are going to hear it, and they're going to think you're talking to them. But you know what? I need you to be patient in your teaching and just teach them and guide them. Because why? Sanctification. We talked a lot about this. Sanctification is a process. It's not an event. You don't become a Christian and then the next day you're fully mature in Christ. It's a process. And so as Timothy is teaching the Scripture, he's to be patient with people, understanding that we don't get there overnight. And sometimes we, th- we, we can see our spiritual immaturity in how we react to different situations that come at us. Think about the last time that you were confronted with something bad in your life. Something happened that wasn't too pleasing to your agenda for the day. What happened? How did you respond to that? Those are good examples of our patience, our spiritual maturity. How do we deal with things that just, you know, we're not expecting to happen? I was reading in... Tim Keller's daily Proverbs devotion this last week, and he talked about Proverbs 19.11. It says, a person's wisdom yields patience. It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. And then he wrote this. It was so good. He said, a body part that is injured or inflamed responds with instant recoil when touched. The Hebrew word for patience here means a relaxed face rather than one that instantly snarls when provoked. When people say something you don't like, do you shoot right back? Or do you slow your response and act rather than react? What is so touchy about us? 
we feel we must defend our glory or honor. It is our ego that is so sensitive. Is that not so true? That our egos, and we're not patient, we're not wise and we're not patient. And our patience and lack of patience reveals our lack of wisdom and our lack of spiritual maturity. But when we're living more and more for God's glory and his honor, then we can respond this way. And so he says to Timothy, keep preaching, keep teaching, be patient with people. The word doesn't return void. Sanctification is a process. It's not an event. So keep your eyes on the clock, Timothy. Even as you keep your eye on the clock, know that you have to be patient with people in their spiritual growth and development. Don't get distracted. All right, run the offense. Run the two-minute offense. Don't be pulled and swayed by peripheral things that don't matter. You've got to stay focused and then expect resistance. Expect resistance. And look, as we read this next verse, look what he says. As more time passes, more and more people will tune out the gospel. Expect it. Look, verse, verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. The time's coming when the true gospel is going to be rejected, when people don't want to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and verses that talk to us about our self-denial that's, re- that's required in following Christ, like Mark 8.35 where Jesus said, For whoever would save his life would lose it, should lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's, you're going to save it. And so as long as we have this idea that we can bring our stallion, our beautiful stallion, and ultimately it's my life for me, my life for, for what I want in this life, to get what I want, and I'm putting a spin on it like it's like for God, but ultimately it's about me. And as long as I live that way, I'm not losing my life for the sake of the gospel. I'm saving my life, not losing my life. And so Losing your life is saying, God, here's my best. This is, this is the greatest thing that I've ever been able to accomplish, and it's yours. God, you gave the ability in the first place, and I'm bringing it back to you. It's yours. And we lay that at his feet, and that's what worship is, giving our all, giving our best to God. And so we live for God's glory, not our own glory. But he says the time's coming when people want to hear that. They won't want to hear sound teaching, verse 3. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers who suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth, and they'll wander off into myths. I know it's easy for us to think. I think we're, we're good here at Grace. Right? We preach the Word. We talk about Jesus a lot. The chances are that we won't wander off into truth, wander off into myths, and get away from truth. But in the year 2021, it's unreal if you look over the world, the number of Christian institutions, former Christian institutions, such as Harvard and Yale and others, who were as Christian as you can be. Many Puritan, the Puritans started many of these schools. Yet over time, they pushed God more and more out, truth more and more out, lost trust in his word, and what happens? Eventually, they're anti-Jesus. They're anti-God's word. And so please don't think that this is beyond us, that, that that's for some other church down the street, or that's for some place out on the West Coast. This is us. This is our generation. We, if, if we're serious about it, we have to be 
diligent and intentional, pass this on to our children. Because our children are going to carry the message of Christ to the next generation after them. And so if we lose this generation, we've lost a great deal, maybe even the future of Christianity in our nation altogether. And so we invest, and we don't take it for granted that our kids know we continue to preach the gospel to them just like we continue to preach it to ourselves. And we continue, even long after they made their profession of faith, continue to preach the gospel. And we tell them that life is found not in saving your life, but in losing your life. But our, our, our society, just like in Paul's day, in Timothy's day, they wanted to get together with people who were going to tell them the things that they wanted to hear. Not what they needed to hear. They were to pull in teachers. Hey, yeah, I like this guy. He makes me feel good about myself. He tells me to value myself and my self-esteem is so important. Or do these three or four things and your life is going to be so much better. And the, 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 the tendency is to want to bring in people who make us feel good rather than give us the truth. And they present Jesus as some cosmic killjoy who's after your you know, demise. You don't want you to be happy. He's opposed to pleasure. But the thing we need to tell our kids and the thing that we need to tell ourselves again and again is what Jesus said in John 10.10. 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's Satan's job. I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. Is that what you believe? Is that the gospel that you believe? Because if you're actions say something other than that, then you really don't believe it that much. Do your actions say that God is your delight, living for Him? Does your actions say that you're bringing Him your first and your best? This is hard stuff, and you understand why people want teachers that say things they like to hear, because then you can go home feeling good about yourself, and you think, well, that was great. You know, I, I'll be back next week because I want to feel good again. And, man, that's awesome. I put a smile on my face, and, you know, it's about me. And, you know, maybe through this message I've given that, that has been given me today that I can experience more prosperity in my life. And it becomes all about us and not about the glory of God. And we talked a lot about in Timothy the fact that oftentimes the first indicator of the fact that we're not following Jesus and the true gospel really is the fact that we are not pursuing personal holiness and we allow ourselves to be okay with things in our life that we shouldn't be okay with. So he says, Timothy, keep your eye on the clock. Don't get distracted. Expect the defense, all right? These guys are coming at you hard. Expect resistance. It's going to be tough. It's going to be difficult. But he says, you got a role here in this. Here's your role. Execute it. Verse 5, as for you, Timothy, one of Paul's favorite expressions, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Again, sober-mindedness is about being focused. It's about being self-controlled. And he says that suffering, it's been a common theme again throughout this book. And back in chapter 3, he said, all who live godly in Christ Jesus, we're gonna, you're going to be suffering persecution. Expect it. It comes with it. All right? If you live godly, you're going to get persecuted. It may look different from culture to culture, time to time, but there's going to be a degree of persecution for anyone who truly follows Christ. And he says, then execute your role, Timothy. Do the work of an evangelist. And that's for all of us, not just Timothy. Do the work of an evangelist. What is that about? That's about being a herald, being a proclaimer of the gospel, one who announces the good news of Jesus. 
It's, it's asking God to allow you to bring grace into other people's lives and allowing you to help them to see how that they can have life and have it to its fullest. Fulfill your ministry, he says. Do the work of evangelists. Fulfill your ministry. It's hard. It's messy. Timothy, resistance is coming. But fulfill your ministry. So, in closing, let's talk about the head, heart, and hands. What we need to remember intellectually from this is living for God's glory is all that matters in the end. Living for God's glory is all that matters at the Bema Seat of Christ. Living for God's glory is the only thing after this life that will matter. And so if we're going to have a heart that changes, we need to pray for God's grace to truly know what really matters. Pray for His grace. Because most of you aren't having to choose between deep, evil stuff and really, really good stuff. It's probably somewhere in the middle where you're trying to choose between what's good, better, or best. And the tendency is to say, God, I need the security of the big carrot for myself, all right? And that's going to be something either I can put up on a plaque and, and proclaim or, you know, to feed my family. And so I need to keep this one for myself. But I got another one. It's, it's second best. It's really close to the first one. I'll bring you that one, God. And probably most people will think and say, wow, that's impressive. That's good stuff. But God knows. And so we need to pray for grace to know what really truly matters the most. And then our hands, really practically. I just want to ask you to do this. As you meet people, as you enter into a room with people, just pray in your mind, say, God, what are you doing in this person's life in front of me? What are you doing in this situation? If we could just have that kind of focus on the clock, on what matters and not being distracted, and we're doing our job and doing our responsibilities, but we're saying, God, what are you doing here? Think about what would change. I promise you, if Grace Church would do that, it would change so many lives. So many people would see Jesus just because we become more aware of what God's doing around us. Just praying, God, show me. Make me aware. Take me beyond my life for me and help me to live my life for thee, God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this book of Second Timothy, and we don't want to ever fall into the the, the, the habit of listening and uh, surrounding ourselves with yes people and people who just tell us the things that we want to hear to make us feel better about ourselves. God, we need your word. And ultimately, it's when we humble ourselves and have that faith like a child is where we're lifted up and we find great purpose in life. We, we find great reason for existence. We walk into rooms and situations with just an eagerness to be part of what you're doing in this world. And we see relationships in a whole different light. We see our marriage and our family and our kids in a whole different light. Because we want to really truly live for your glory and bring you our best. And God, for those who are basically feel out of season at this point, their soul is heavy and they're weighed down and they don't have a lot of emotion behind what they're doing. God, may they bring their best to you at this moment. God, may their best be their sacrifice and their, their gift to you. And God, for those right now who are on top of the world that things are falling in place and, 
investments are paying off and situations are great and kids are excelling in school, God, in those high moments of our life, may you get our first and our best. And God, may we point people quickly to you and your glory and your honor. And God, help us to not be self-absorbed, but help us to be for your kingdom and your honor in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.